Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, let's bring in George Saravelos, shall we? Formerly of the IMF, now of Deutsche Bank, the global co-head of FX Research at the German Investment Bank. George, get us up to speed. Let's begin with the Bank of Japan and news in the last 24 hours. It's an operation they do every single week, yet this time it got a lot of headlines because they've pared back some of the long bond purchases. Did it mean that much to you as it meant to some people in this market? Oh, it didn't really mean that much. And since we've actually seen a bit of a retracement in dollar yen, which initially uh, dropped, the thing to bear in mind is that the Bank of Japan is no longer targeting a quantity of purchases, but a price. And they've been actually tapering. They've been slowing the amounts they buy uh, for the last six to nine months. So it wasn't really a big surprise to us. But this being said, it speaks of how sensitive the yen is going to be to any sort of sign that the BOJ could potentially uh, be shifting policy. And I think there's a broader theme taking place in currency markets, whereby the correlation between yields and currencies is breaking down. And if you look at dollar-yen versus 10-year US yields, there's quite a gap starting to build up. So even though US yields are going up, dollar-yen is uh, lower. George, that was a story last year as well for the euro dollar trade. Rate differentials didn't match the move we saw in the euro. Do you think we shifted away from the importance of, of rate differentials and lean more towards, say, what flows are doing? Very much so. If you think about the last few years, rate differentials have been extremely important for currencies. But if you go further back, if you go before the crisis, rates actually didn't matter that much for FX. So between the 2004-06 period, the Fed was hiking rates, and yet the dollar was weakening. And I think we're returning to that period whereby it's a lot more about flows, uh, the US basic balance of payments, portfolio flows, current account, rather than what the Fed is doing. The Fed, unfortunately, is not going to be that important anymore. Get me to 130 on euro dollar. That's your call. How do we get there? So it's a combination of a number of things. On the US side, the biggest problem we think the dollar will have this year is asset valuations. If you look at uh, the combined valuation of fixed income and equities, it's pretty much sitting at 60-year highs. So we struggle to see who's going to be the marginal buyer of US assets over the next few months. Second problem the dollar has is when global growth does well, Historically, the dollar tends to weaken because it's the global funding currency of choice. And then, of course, we have the European story where you still have very large underweight by European investors. They've invested too much outside of Europe, and we think they'll start bringing some of that money back. George, does 130 on euro dollar by year end require a more active ECB? Well, I would argue the opposite, that precisely because the euro will be appreciating, it will force the ECB to be very slow and very careful in its exit. And that's exactly what happened last year. The euro was going up even as the ECB was very, very slow and careful. Um, So I wouldn't say you need a very, very hawkish ECB. You're going all Irving Fisher on us. This is not Stanley Fisher, folks. This is Irving Fisher from 100, uh, some maybe 90 years ago. George, walk us through that stronger euro is disinflationary to the greater Europe, isn't it? Exactly. So if the euro is rising, uh, it will have a knock-on impact on how quickly core inflation can normalize out of Europe. But if the euro is rising for good reasons, if it's because European growth is doing well, if it's because people are adjusting their hedge ratios on European and US Mm -hmm. assets, then that might not necessarily be a bad thing. It does slow down 
the ECB, uh, but it doesn't mean the exit is stopped. And that's exactly right. what we saw last year. Does it give Greece, Portugal, the troubled Southern European balance sheets, does it give them time to adjust or does it give it time to go into bad habits again? If you look at the sources of European growth over the last uh, few quarters, it's all been about domestic demand. Credit growth is recovering, domestic consumer and business confidence is at its highs. So I don't think a stronger euro uh, will be that much of an issue. And if you look at it from the big, uh, va from the big valuation perspective, um, really the euro at 130 is not that extreme. We've been at much, much greater extremes before. So I don't expect a stronger euro uh, to be a big negative for European yeah. growth next year. George, the theme over the last year or so, in fact, the last several years in the United States and much more so in Europe now, is growth rich, inflation poor. Is that going to be the story for Europe as well for the next several years? Well, we do have a forecast of, a, of an inflation normalization, but the key point around inflation is the speed. I think so. as long as the recovery is orderly, it's along the lines of where central banks expect it to be, markets will not be disrupted. Where you will get a big disruption is if you get a sharp rise and we start worrying about much higher inflation. But so long as it's orderly, which is our expectation, I think markets will continue to behave uh, fairly well. George, I'm just reading Greg Villiers' note just published moments ago. The, the notes folks out of Washington linking politics with economics the last few days have been just extraordinary. And George, let me read you his boldened uh, sentence. Long-term debt is a ticking time bomb. Most members of Congress know it, but they will not embrace the prescriptions required. We could bring that over, George Saravalis, to any other country. Is that what we're really walking into is with a grinding higher yield environment or the dynamics of 130 euro that it's all going to roll over into long-term debt challenges two years and five years out? Well, it's interesting because uh, I've been using the 2004-06 parallel, but then, of course, we can't forget what happened in 2007 and 2008. Um, so I do think this issue of leverage, uh, high levels of debt will be an issue, but I'm not convinced we're at that time yet because if you look at the level of credit growth, if you look at the, the pent-up demand that still exists, it does show plenty of potential uh, for a pickup and a, a continued improvement in the global economic outlook. What I would also point out is that by central banks being so predictable, so scared to shock the market, this encourages uh, further re-leveraging. Uh, eventually, it could end in big problems, but I'm not convinced yeah. that this is the year to call for that. Algerd Servos, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your time. Stan Collender with us, who is truly our expert on fiscal affairs. We thank him so much for coming in as we talk to CBO directors and former directors. Stan, Greg Villiers' morning note, I've already mentioned this, folks, has an emboldened single sentence. Long-term debt is a ticking time bomb. Most members of Congress know it, but they will not embrace the prescriptions required. Stan Collender, have you ever witnessed left or right politicians caring about the world of Stan Collender? Do they really care about our debt and our deficit? They don't care about it when they're in charge and it's their debt. <laughs> you, they, they care about it when it's someone else can be blamed for it. Uh, and we, look, you just had the best example of this, Tom and John. Uh, um, 
You, you, after years of hearing de- Republican deficit hawks complain about the deficit and the national debt and leaving debt to our grandchildren and things like that, <clears throat> they just increased the debt by one and a half trillion dollars, maybe more than two trillion. So it, it, right. it's not an issue. What is your timeline to where the deficit out two years becomes a tangible issue for the markets? Oh, not until after the two, 2020 election. That far out? Oh, come on. It could be, I don't it buy could be that. further than that. It could be further than that, Tom. Let's get real oh, about on. this. The, like United, the United States of America is in charge of its own currency. If the United States of America is going to get in trouble with a deficit that blows out to 5% of GDP and a, what, a debt-to-GDP ratio north of, of 100%, when Japan is north of 200, I'd say Japan's going to get in a yeah, whole but, lot more trouble before the U.S. even sees any kind of trouble whatsoever. On, and I mean, Japan isn't seeing any trouble whatsoever, Stan, Tom. What does Pharaoh know about the U.S. deficit? Help us here. We're not Italy, are we? No, we're not Italy, but we are a country that's about to have at least a trillion dollar annual debt in excellent economic times for every year through the end of the uh, Trump administration and probably beyond. And Trump, Trump, uh, excuse me, Tom, the uh, the markets will he won't care that much about the deficit if the if the ways to reduce the deficit are things that'll hurt the markets. Stan, at this point, though, a trillion dollars sounds emphatic, but it's 5% of GDP. I take your point that they should be introducing a counter-cyclical fiscal policy, that in good times you should be cutting the deficit, you shouldn't be enlarging it. But the idea that there's going to be trouble anytime soon, this is politics, isn't it? This isn't finance or economics. Oh, no, no. It's, 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 first of all, it's a combination, but obviously politics is, is, is the, the key phrase here. Um, and the key, the key consideration. Um, the thing about the deficit is that it won't be a problem until it's a problem, and then everyone's going to start pointing a finger and say, you should have done something, you should have told us. But for both of you, keep in mind that with so many members leaving Congress in so short a period of time, they don't think it's their problem. They think it'll be another Congress's, another president's problem, and they don't have to deal with it in the meantime. I mean, without a doubt, Stan, we're witnessing one of the greatest intergenerational wealth transfers in history. And at some point, as you say, it's going to bite. But in the here and now, the idea that the deficit blows into some sort of crisis, it's going to be Japan first. It's going to be Italy before that. If the United States goes down from some kind of fiscal crisis position, isn't the whole world going with them? Oh, almost certainly. Uh, but, but Jonathan, the, 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 the key thing here is that as interest rates start to rise, it will start to be a political problem. Now, you're exactly right in that um, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But certainly by the 2020 election, if the Federal Reserve and the markets start responding to uh, higher yeah. government borrowing needs, it's going to have it. It's going to start to bite on the economy. So I want to I want to sum this up because John, I think, is correct to mention five percent of GDP. Where, in your experience, Dan Collender, does deficit GDP tip into the discourse? Is it six percent? Do we have to get out that far? Well, Tom, I'm not sure that anything that's hap- going to happen in the next five years. Um, can be pre- predicted by things that have happened in the past. But 5 6 7% is going to start to be the new norm okay. here. Um, and that, that's when we're yeah. going to start to have an issue. Too short. Stan Collender, again, thank you for your help with us over the years. Really looking forward to many visits with you in 2018. Jeff Sprague with us doing fundamental analysis on the industrial. I want more Bitcoin technicals. Oh, we'll do that later. Okay, that's exciting. Jeff Sprague's going to hang up the phone if we do it. Uh, Now, Jeff, it's morning in America. 
for industrials. Are there a lot of mid-cap and smaller cap, but let's focus mid-cap industrials below our radar, ready for the uh, bolt-oning of bigger companies? Yes, Tom, I think there is. And uh, thanks for that intro on Bitcoin. It just made all my stocks feel less expensive. So, uh, you know, we move forward here. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, I think, you know, obviously we started this dialogue talking about GE and Caterpillar and Honeywell, and that's that's all fine and good. But, uh, you know, I think we want to look a little bit uh, lower here where there's, you know, some real operating leverage. We like we like Dover as a firm. We like Crane. Uh, ITT, uh, some of the flow control companies like SPX Flow, uh, they're not all necessarily uh, takeout candidates. Some of them could be, uh, but um, you know, there, a lot of them are domestically oriented companies. They're going to benefit more broadly from tax reform maybe than some of the big multinationals, and, and some of them are legitimate candidates to be taken out over time. Jeff, the overarching theme from 35,000 feet, thematically speaking, is just companies are going to spend more, CapEx is going to improve by industrials give me a a more detailed thematic trade beneath the surface what is it specifically you're looking to happen this year off the back of the tax bill well, there are several things. For example, when we look at mining, to bring it back to the CapEx uh, you know, argument, you know, at, at peak, Caterpillar made something like 1,700 mining trucks, and at trough, they did about 70 or 80. Now, that peak was the super cycle peak that we'll never get back to, yeah. but we think normal demand is six or 700 units. Uh, so there is a tremendous amount of upside to come back to normal. Also, we're looking at spending on the utility grid, uh, more the local grid, where companies actually earlier last year were focused on uh, trying to spend for storm hardening and modernization. And then we had all these storms come through that really accentuate the point that we need to do that. So I think we'll see spending in the utility area. And we like, you know, the, the whole energy complex looks pretty interesting, too. People are obviously focused on the oil price, which is fine. But, you know, when we look at downstream chemical CapEx, particularly in the U.S., looks like it's clearly coming up. Uh, we see some activity starting to happen in the refiners on the pipeline side. Uh, so, you know, th- those, are, those are a couple vertical markets to mention that we're, you know, where yeah. we see some very specific activity beginning to happen. And, and Jeff, just to be clear, on the energy side, is a deregulation effort down in uh, the nation's capital going to turn up the volume on that trade? Uh, it, it may, I think, in the near term. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, very economically uh, justifiable plans and, and chemicals. You know, you're referring more to do we open up the spigots offshore and some other things. Yeah. I think that takes a little longer to play out, but uh, it certainly, well, uh, you know, provides a positive pulse into the marketplace. A guy wants uh, a good guy, I might point out, I'll editorialize and say a, a good guy. A guy named Emil once told me, look, all we need is 3.2% GDP which was so long ago, I don't think we knew Mr. Trump existed. I'm kidding. But the answer is we certainly didn't know he was going to run for president. Jeff Spragan, your models, are we anywhere near the Trumpian 3, 3.1, Emeltian 3.2% real GDP that can just make industrial America explode? I think I think we're flirting with that. I mean, I think we're, you know, I, I think there's a real chance that we bust through that 
that threshold. And you're you're exactly right that uh, you really see the the pro cyclical multiplier effect mm-hmm. on industrials around three yeah. percent, maybe a little bit lower, but you know, uh, two point seven five right. to three, and then things really change. And, and explain why that is, because anybody under a certain vintage has never experienced that. Why does that occur, Jeff Sprague? There's there's a couple reasons. One, you actually get some real capacity absorption, which drives the need to you know physically spend for growth. But you also just have this you know kind of self reinforcing dynamic that gets going. It's like a snowball going down the hill, right? Uh, one company's capex is the other guy's revenue, and you know you get that uh, that virtuous circle going, so to speak. And uh, you know that doesn't run indefinitely, but uh, if it's if something isn't uh, thrown in the way to run it off the rails, uh, it certainly can happen for, for two or three years. This has been wonderful. Jeff Sprague, really generous of you to be with us. Jared Bernstein joins us right now. He was an advisor to Vice President Biden course with the Economic Policy Institute uh, for years. We're thrilled to have him on today to talk budget. I do want to talk a little politics first, Jared, which I think is is so important. And that is right now, Oprah Winfrey is the, the, the bell of the Democratic Party, if you will. And I go back, talk about 1979 to 1982 and the color purple. It was an extraordinary book, an extraordinary movie. I remember looking at Oprah Winfrey and who nobody knew and saying, who is this person? But Jared, within the mix of our political economy, could candidate Winfrey win Michigan and win Wisconsin from the Republicans? Is she the kind, I don't mean Miss Winfrey personally, but is, is that kind of candidate what your Democratic Party needs? Well, I, I'd like to play the economist card and say I really, you know, I'm hard enough doing economic predictions, but let me try to answer your, your interesting question. I don't think you can extract who she is personally from, from the question you asked. And it seems to me that Oprah Winfrey could uh, win the devotion of the electorate wherever she decided to uh, okay. place herself. So I think that the question is, yeah, could she win? Absolutely. Should she, uh, from the perspective of Democrats, it's a much trickier question. Yeah, that's fair and nicely answered. I just thought I had to bring it up. Jared, we spoke with Stan Collender earlier, who made clear he's got a lag time before our fiscal policy and mess slams in. Do you agree that we can wait out through 2019 to the election year 2020 uh, before we really talk about deficit to GDP? Uh, no, I think this is a uh, – I'm not disagreeing with Stan as much as I'm thinking about the impact of deficit spending on the 2018 economy, and I think it's an underreported, underappreciated story. I was just looking at numbers from the CBO. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars from the tax cut coming into the economy and government uh, deficits, uh, federal budget deficits, over the next two years. The deficit uh, is probably going to go up to four or five percent of GDP. This is going to this, this may very well knock the unemployment rate down to three and a half percent by the end of of this year. In essence, we're doing a really remarkable experiment, which is um, pretty seriously stimulating the economy as we're closing in on full employment. 
Now, the Fed is a big wild card, but I think this is in some ways, and I, I don't want to give the Republicans credit because I think the tax cut is a terrible piece of work, but in some ways, this is what secular stagnation uh, um, uh, philosophers have ordered up, the idea that uh, we need more fiscal stimulus. I understand, Jared, the need to have a counter-cyclical fiscal, counter-cyclical fiscal policy. That makes sense for most economists. That's fine. I don't understand how we get from a disagreement over doing that to a fiscal crisis at some point in the future with debt-to-GDP levels of around 100%. Why is that so dramatic? Well, I don't, I don't think that it is so dramatic. I mean, I tend to be pretty dovish on these sort of things. Um, and certainly, if you look at the kind of utilization indicators, inflation being the most, uh, probably the most important, or interest rates for that matter, yes, these things are tilting up a bit, but it, it, it's very hard to get excited about an overheating case. I think the biggest problem with our high debt-to-GDP ratio, is, and, and it's a really significant one, is that when we hit the next recession, we are going to have too little monetary space, and we're going to have too little fiscal space. I don't know when that next recession is. But I'd like to go into it with a debt-to-GDP ratio that was coming down, not going up. And I think a lot of people would have some sympathy with that view. So, Jared, the question would be, what is the response to the next recession? Uh, This is the thing that keeps me up at night. Uh, I think the current economy is percolating along in, in, in impressive ways. It's true that there are definitely pockets that the expansion hasn't reached, but it's getting there. After all, we are in year nine. But we are just fundamentally unprepared for the next downturn, depending on when it hits. Again, monetary space will be constrained by a low federal funds rate. Fiscal space will be constrained by a very high debt yeah. GDP ratio. And if you get under the surface and start looking at UI trust funds and how states are ready, that doesn't look so great either. Jared, very quickly, I want to come back and, and delve more into this. There seems to be an assumption interview to interview that entitlements are impossible and untouchable. Amendment to our entitlement hopes and dreams? Is it even feasible we would address that? Well, if I address that, you mean cutting them, then I think that's going to be a very heavy lift, especially in, uh, in, a, uh, in an election year, a midterm year. Yeah. And you're always one year away from an election year. So I think in terms of cutting, very tough. In terms of supporting them, well, probably also pretty tough. Jared Bernstein uh, with us this morning. We greatly appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.